Welcome to the Inspire Your Life podcast. I am your host, Morgan Kimbaro. Our guest today is my friend, Arthur McWaters, the founder of Legion Health. Arthur, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. This has been like, I'm very excited for this. It's been a long time coming. Oh, I'm very excited too. So give our audience a little bit of background about you, where you came from growing up. You know, I think that would be like the best place to get started and uh, really share who you are. Yeah, thanks, man. I grew up in a pretty small town in Colorado. It's called Trinidad. It was actually, um, this is a bit of a side note, but it, it was about to be the capital of Colorado before they rerouted the main train route to go to Denver. And there was some you know, local politics back in the like 1890s, and Denver <laughs> took uh, the front runner seat. But when I grew up in Trinidad, it was like 8,000 people, very small. Uh, my My dad was a cop, and so I was at a healthy respect for the rules, and they really prioritized my education, which was a very big blessing. Ended up getting into Princeton on a essentially a full-ride scholarship. There was a very small, limited window of opportunity with like a scholarship that was just for that county that I grew up in, and uh, otherwise Princeton would have just been like uh, way beyond what I thought like our, our family could afford, but that made it possible, and uh, was lucky enough to be able to go there. Uh, I graduated with a degree in architecture because I like the kind of combination of art, science, uh, design, and the way that it can really impact the way people live. And then after graduating, moved to San Diego and worked at McKinsey. So I got to do a bunch of very interesting work on the growth and uh, strategy side for a number of tech firms in Silicon Valley. And after being there for about two years, I decided to quit my job and join with two of my best friends from school. They were my roommates at Princeton and start a, a digital health company. So that's the brief version. Uh, anything in particular you're like curious about or that we haven't covered in our personal like friendship conversations? Oh yeah, well I mean, you know, we we know everything about each other, but for our audience to know, I think it's important to just kind of unpack that a little bit more. Mm. You know, going, you know, from a small town, you know, and then to Princeton, mm. you know, Talk a little bit more about that because you were homeschooled, right? And then you go from being homeschooled then to Princeton University. What was that adjustment like? Yeah. So my homeschool experience was interesting. I, I did uh, my first up until like seventh grade just in regular schools, um, like a regular kid. And so I got some of that adjustment, <laughs> like social uh, <laughs> social awareness and stuff. Obviously not 100%, but um, my parents – wanted me to have uh, the opportunity to do like AP classes and um, challenge myself academically because they're like, look, if you're not challenging yourself, you're not going to be as, as happy or as successful. And the only way to do that from that small town was an online school called Connections Academy. And they basically were just like a public school in Colorado accredited, but you could take AP classes, do that all online. So uh, I was doing that before COVID hit and everyone had to do that. And it was like, you know, pretty funny. We had like, you ever been to uh, the Verizon store and they have those little Wi-Fi hotspots called MiFi? Yeah. Dude, MiFi was my best friend because we would travel a lot as well. And so I would be, you know, firing up my Ubuntu laptop with my little MiFi. And like my dad got us like these, um, they're not the they're not the bricks, but they're the ones that are almost that, um, I would guess, rigid, right? Like they're these laptops that have like two, two inches of like armor on either side of the screen. <laughs> But dad's like, uh, they didn't want anything to break. So I go from working online with my little MiFi, my Ubuntu, and my laptop, and uh, 
you know, only seeing other humans on like the nights where I would play soccer or do whatever like that to being in the midst of you know, New Jersey, which is a completely different environment than anywhere I'd been before. And being around professors, being around other students. And honestly, I loved it, man. Like I'm an extrovert. I really enjoy people and I get a lot of, I would say my learnings out of being uh, around like professors who are really interested in something and that I get along with and I feel like they see my potential. So I'm like, oh, I want to work harder, do more things. So that was really beautiful. I loved going to Princeton for that. And uh, one thing I noticed is that most people at Princeton were very stressed. Mm. You know, they had Tiger Mom style, you know, uh, That's the childhood. Mascot. Exactly, literally. They literally had like that style of of childhood. And when they got to Princeton, they were doing all-nighters all the time, super worried about their GPA. And I did that for the first year because I was like, wow, like, you know, I'm a kid from a small town. Like, I feel like I, uh, you know, got super blessed to be here and I don't want to waste this opportunity, so I need to go really hard in the paint. But pretty quickly I realized this is not sustainable and I'm not even enjoying it. Like, I'm just grateful to be here. I'm like Forrest Gump, man. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Like, I'm just like, I guess I, you know, showed up, you know, and, and that's uh, that, that feeling of gratitude. And by the end of freshman year, I was like, I'm not doing these all-nighters anymore. And I, I don't think I did a single all-nighter until my senior thesis after that. Um, because I was like, you know what? Like, I'm going to just see if I can sleep eight hours, prioritize my tasks when I'm awake, come away with a good outcome and, and I did actually I got uh, I graduated cum laude but it wasn't because I was like grinding super super hard I was just like hey I'm gonna focus on things that I like and I'm gonna do my best and I'm not gonna waste this one like amazing part of my life being super stressed all the time and uh, that I think was a good choice because I have like really really fond memories of being on the campus and you know meeting some pretty cool people that would end up being very important to me and, and I think that's maybe a uh, an aspect of my life that I've still tried to carry on, which is that you're a, f- you're a finite human. You can't be everything, everywhere, all at once. You can't do it all simultaneously. And so it's probably worse for you to try to do that than it is for you to accept your own limitations and ruthlessly prioritize what's important to you and just be really good at those things. And present, you know, like... Uh, one of my things now, at, uh, you probably already know this, but um, every morning I take a, a prayer walk. That's like my favorite part of the day at this point. And I try to ask myself the question. And also, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, so I kind of invite God to help me make this decision. Like, you know, what are the top one or two things that I need to do today? And, you know, God, give me the wisdom to identify those moments that are really important. And to give those as much time and space as they need. It might be a conversation with my wife that day. Like, that might be what's most beneficial for my long-term future. Or, like, it just, you know, you can kind of feel like, okay, this is important. This is the moment that I need to be present, bring my best, right? And sometimes it's a conversation with a business contact. Sometimes it's I'm building some document or something for my, for work. Uh, but a lot of times it's it's not a... It's not something that seems like directly like a task. It's something that will carry on into future things. Conversation with an employee, conversation with my co-founders, conversation with a potential partner, like all of those things, when you give them like full presence, I've found like go a lot better and, and um, 
yeah, it, it's just something that I've been like doing more and more, and I and I feel like it it makes me enjoy what I do more. Right? It's like we only have so many days on this planet. You can't do everything. You can't fit twenty things into every day. Like people try. I have sometimes you know, very busy days. It's not like I am so ruthlessly prioritized that I only have one to-do item every day. Like, I still have stuff that fills up the cracks, but it's like I try to be present for those, like one or two important things. Absolutely. And that's what makes you a very well-rounded person, to have that perspective to not just put all your eggs in one basket, right, and not to be super hyper-focused, right? You have a talent stack of all of these different skill sets that build upon each other. And I think that's such an important part of education and learning it's not just the books, right, but it's the people, right? It's the actual hands-on and, and, and practical, you know, use. You know, something I wanted to touch on, you know, you talked about your faith, and, you know, you found your faith at Princeton. Talk a little bit more about that, you know, how that guides your life, how that guides your marriage, how that guides, you know, everything. Because, you know, in mm. this world, you know, you're, you're dealing with secular people, mm. and, you know, I know that you're trying to be that shining light and, you know, put – put the, you know, image of God, you know, like your best foot forward, be that shining light. You know, talk about that, Arthur. Yeah. Uh, I first went to church in high school, and I pretty quickly realized that uh, all the values that I cared about that my parents instilled in me were, like, pretty directly um, organized by a creator. Like, if you don't, at least the way I see it, is the the argument for morality without some sort of God or, or like, uh, top of the hierarchy of, of principles, like, didn't really resonate with me, but I didn't know that it was missing until I was, like, hearing about it. I was like, wow, God sounds amazing. And then I started believing in Jesus as well, and I got baptized after my freshman year of college, and because I hadn't really been going to church my entire life, I, I was pretty, you know, I was, like, pretty fresh to it, and, um, I would say, like, I just added pieces to my understanding slowly over time, read the Bible a lot, not as much as I should, but, <laughs> you know, tried to pick it up and try to really, like, allow it to do work on my, my character. Um, and I think the biggest impact in the, in the day-to-day, like, work that I do or in, in school is, first of all, like, I just I feel very, very grateful. I, I don't think, I mean, I'm again, like, kid from a very small town, very few people have the opportunities that I do now, and I just feel like I've been blessed. Like, I can't even express yeah. how, how grateful I am for the opportunities that I've had and the people that I've met and the fact that I'm you know, sitting in San Diego with somebody that I, you know, love and admire. And Thanks, man. You know, I've got a beautiful wife, and I get to run a company that I feel like is very meaningful and it's growing, and it's like, I just feel like, you know, so blessed. So that, that's like a primary piece. And then second... I think most of the things that we do, especially as leaders, come from uh, our understanding of right and wrong, of wisdom, of how to treat people. And so all of that comes from like an internal place. It's like it's gonna, your life is going to be a direct reflection of your character, at least over the long term, right? Like you might have you know, momentary ups or downs that aren't related to your character, but long term, it's like it's your character. And so I just try to operate with as much humility as possible because I'm not a very good reflection <laughs> in most ways but you know I try to operate with a lot of humility and uh, I think that's really helpful in like dealing with people because everyone wants everyone wants what's best for their life and humility allows you to see what's best for other people I think and 
that's good for business because you can't do a good business unless you're adding value to people's lives. And you can't be a good leader for your company unless you're like working well with your co-founders, being open-minded, being sensitive, being thoughtful, being you know honest enough to speak your mind, even if it's difficult sometimes or you haven't fully processed. Like, yeah, so a, a lot of it just comes down to the internal like character development piece, being like, yeah, I'm not a perfect person. I make mistakes, but I I'm gonna lean into the parts of me that I feel like are best suited to like serve others. I don't know if that's like a good synopsis or not, but no, yeah. absolutely. And I, I I could not agree more with the humility part, right? Mm. Because, you know, we as humans we get caught up in our ego, right? This, that, and the other, the world of what we should have, what people tell us this, especially in the day and age of social media. But yeah. the ability to think outside of oneself and understand the people around them, right? And learn from your mistakes, right, and get better. And that's gonna make you a better leader and ultimately right a better husband a better friend right a better yeah. son yeah all that stuff that's uh that's amazing thanks man yeah i wanted to you know after princeton like let's you know in the timeline you go to mckinsey right mm -hmm. mckinsey one of the top consulting firms famous right you know talk about that experience working at mckinsey what that was like what you learned from a business perspective and then what was the you know, transition, what was the inspiration of, hey, I'm going to leave McKinsey, the top consulting firm in the world, to start my own company. Talk about that one. Yeah. Well, I got into McKinsey in a very lucky way as well, or blessed, right? Um, graduated, had no idea what McKinsey was, frankly, which is kind of silly, because uh, all of my classmates were, like, practicing case interviews and, like, super hyped about the, and stressed about the interviews, and uh, I was just heads down. I didn't think that was going to be my roadmap at all. But I came to San Diego. I had talked with a very good friend slash mentor. And he asked me, hey, like, what do you care about long term? I'm like, I love business. He's like, okay, well, have you thought about doing consulting? I'm like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I looked it up when I got home. And I was like, oh, so you get to learn about companies, be involved with the executives as they're making important decisions, and then – you're only with a certain company for like on average six weeks as you keep adding a skill set and keep adding a toolkit around growing companies or helping them with those certain types of decisions. And I was like, that sounds insane. Like I would do that for free. I would love to learn why McDonald's has their Mc their fries priced at, you know, one ninety five and why they have their certain combos and how they've organized their franchise model. Like I always thought about that from childhood. Like how does how do businesses make these very nuanced decisions and also the very big decisions? So I was like, dude, I, I would pay to do this. I wouldn't I need to get paid. And uh, so I reached out to some of my friends who were at McKinsey. And I was like, hey, like, could you introduce me to, like, a recruiter? Like, I would love to learn about this. They're like, yeah, sure. I have a very good friend who uh, introduced me. And um, I applied the next day because the application deadline was the next day. I was like, oh, my gosh. So this is a quick turnaround time never done a case interview, never studied for it, just learned what it was like, you know, two days ago <laughs> and then reached out one day ago, submit my resume. They're like, great, your first interview is in two weeks. Gosh, so now I'm starting to remember all my friends who are practicing these things, like even in my dorm room, like with each other, like case interviews. I'm like, oh, wow, like this is like a legit interview process. This is going to be difficult. So I got a book on Amazon, like how to do case interviews. And it's a good one. It's like, you know, it's the standard book to read about it. And I probably had the chance to do, like, five practice ones with various friends. Like, I would call them on the phone, like, hey, can you help me? 
and uh, made it to the second round interview, made it to the third round interview, made it to the final round interview, and uh, there's a funny story about how I forgot how to do long division uh, in mm. my case interview. One of the things that McKinsey like specializes in is they're not trying to see how much you know, they're trying to see how you think about things. So they'll ask you questions like, like pretend that you are the executive of a company that sells um, you know, tennis balls. Like, what are the all the ways that you can increase your uh, your total revenue, given that you have, you know, twenty five stores per state, and you have an average of X number of employees, and you have, uh, you know, an average retail sales of X, and you know you need to increase your distribution to all of these stores. What would you do? And you're like, uh, okay. So they give you sixty seconds to write down your ideas and structure them in a way that you can quickly say. Number one thing is I would analyze the unit economics of each canister of tennis balls, and I would try to figure out if there's any ways that we can you know, increase our revenue per unit. Number two, I would try to see if there's ways that we can increase the productivity of our channel partners. Number three, I would see if there's there – you can, you can think of it and structure the problem. There's not really a right or wrong answer. Um, but I forgot how to do long division, and that's one of the key things is they're testing your mental math. You don't have a calculator. You don't have to know the industry. Just trying to think about it from a first principles perspective, and uh, they had this question where I think I'm, I'm forgetting the, the details of the case, but the final answer was the result of dividing one number by another number, and I gave him like a, an answer that was rounded to the nearest like ten, um, like it was fifty eight thousand divided by like uh, thirty seven and a half or something, and I gave it like an answer that was like pretty close. And he's like, okay, no, I meant for like the exact number, <laughs> so. I'm like looking at the piece of paper with like my hand like kind of trembling. He's like, "Do you want me to help you?" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> uh, so we d we did it together on like the whiteboard, and I'm like, "I'm like, oh, dude, like I am never gonna get this job." Uh, but he was like, "Actually, that's not the biggest you know problem in the world. We have people like forget this stuff all the time, but you got the answer generally right, and you you got you understood the leverage." I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" So the next two two weeks until my final round interview, I'm just like doing nothing but long division, like <laughs> studying everything. Uh, when I finally got the offer, I was sitting on uh, a cafe terrace in like Santa Monica because the offices are in Los Angeles. And I got the call, hey, you've been extended an offer to join the firm. And I'm like, I'll say yes right now on the phone. Like, this is amazing. Um, wow. And that was one of those moments, same thing at getting the acceptance letter for Princeton where I'm like, well, clearly, like, I don't fully deserve this. Like, I didn't ace everything. I did a good job. Like, it's not like I was an idiot during the, the interviews. But, like, you know, especially that long division incident, I'm like, wow, like, I could have totally just bombed this. But, you know, I feel really blessed. I, I got to – and it was like, wow, my, my whole world changed because I can't imagine a, a cooler thing to do. So for the next two years, I'm learning as much as I can, specifically about growing companies. Like, in McKinsey, you can do a number of different tracks. You can do industry-specific. Like, you can be like, I only want to focus on oil and gas or I only want to focus on entertainment, or et cetera. Uh, and then you can do all sorts of functions within that industry, or you can do a specific function across industries. Like, I only want to focus on uh, headcount uh, reduction, which is, like, probably the most depressing thing you could do. Or I only want to focus on uh, doing valuations for private equity buyouts, or I only want to focus on growth. And I was like, I want to focus on growth. I like sales. I like learning. I like uh, understanding what makes a company be successful, and I think that mostly comes from increasing revenue and inc increasing margin. So I did a lot of projects there with various tech firms in the Valley, and 
after about two years of it, I was like, this is amazing. And I feel like I've learned enough to be helpful, but there's zero accountability. At least, excuse me, um, as an associate at McKinsey, if you give a bad suggestion and two years later it doesn't work out, right, because these are long-term projects, two years later you're already gone from the project, whether that company succeeds or fails, like, it's not going to reflect on you. You get, re- you get a, a, a grade based on how well you're doing in the project and how you're contributing to the team, but it's not based on results. And I was like, well, if I think I'm like, if I think I'm actually doing the right answers, if I think I'm learning about the, if I think I'm like moving the needle, zero percent of that, either positive or negative, comes back to me as a person. I was like, I want to do something that I am taking the risk and that I can, uh, you know, really learn these skills. Because who knows? Like maybe I'm an idiot, and like these things that I'm suggesting or the way that I'm breaking down this problem is completely wrong. But I'll never know it. Like I need to go put myself at risk. And uh, if you want to start a company, like being in your early 20s is probably the best time to do it because you have the longest timeline to make things work. You're probably not going to have, uh, you know, fewer people are going to have a mortgage, kids, wife, et cetera. And I had none of those things. So I was like, perfect. This is the right time in my life to do this. And my two co-founders uh, were at Mic- Microsoft and the Congressional Budget Office, kind of in a similar you know, headspace. Like, wow, this is cool. Learned a lot. But I want to do something more. I want to do something that uh, is even more of a challenge. And we decided to all quit our jobs together at the same time in uh, 2021. And we had spent a, a enough time learning about the problem space that we wanted to that we were, like, pretty confident we had a good idea. And it was enough to make us all quit our, all quit our jobs and uh, take a risk. Wow. All right. Wow. So you guys quit your jobs and, like, okay, we're just going to go for it. This is how we're going to do it. We have to be all in, right? Burn the ships, essentially. <laughs> no yep. back, yep. no backup option. And so from there, you know, you guys are in different parts of the country, mm-hmm. and you say we got to go to Texas. Mm-hmm. First, it was Dallas, and then eventually it was Austin, which is a growing area where there's a lot of seeds being planted of technology innovation. You know, you move to Texas, right, and then you start building this company, right? Mm-hmm. Talk about the mindset shift of going from being an employee. Then to a founder, mm. right? And talk about I think talk about some of the mental hurdles and some of those things that you went through, right? Yeah, probably varies by personality type, but I think the biggest thing that you notice right off the bat is everything's on you. Like there's no clocking in, clocking out, and just being like, well, you know, I did my duff my stuff for the day, so therefore I can mentally remove myself from the company. It's like, no, if something goes wrong in the middle of the night or if you haven't done enough that day, there's nobody else to blame. It's just you. And the first thing that happens when you realize that is you start working all the time. You're like 24-7, I need to just be as productive as possible. And I pretty quickly realized, same thing as that you know, freshman year of school, that that actually didn't lead to the best results long term, even though it was tempting. Right? It's like, okay, ang- I have this anxiety because I need to do everything right. You don't need to do everything right. It's one of the things that, um, that I remembered actually from my time at McKinsey is that I had this great executive uh, at a large energy company who said, if you're a leader who, who makes two out of three decisions right, like big decisions, you are uh, insanely successful. So, like, it's not batting a 1,000. If you can bat two out of three, if you can bat you know, 66%, you're crushing it. And if you even do more than 50%, you're doing amazing. So 
there, again, there's like that principle of like you're finite. There only you only need to make certain decisions right. And so what I started to realize is that every day it's not like you have to do a thousand things right. It's probably like you need to make one or two conversations go well. You need to plan thoughtfully about like um, the direction of the company in terms of your cash flow, in terms of your products and customers, in terms of your hiring. And if you can do those three things pretty well uh, every day, then it the results start to stack on top of each other. And so the mentality went from, okay, limited responsibility to total accountability to then, okay, how do I manage that total accountability? I start to see things in terms of buckets and priorities and just doing your best with like, you know, a few of those things every day uh, and letting the results and the momentum like stack up. Does that make sense? Or is that like convoluted? No, it absolutely makes sense to just break it down. Yeah. I think um, it'd be best to actually talk about Legion Health and what is yeah, the yeah. what is the what is the the product and service. Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you very briefly about what we first did, but then I, I think maybe what we're doing now is an even better uh, example. So, as you know, sometimes startups uh, pivot, or most startups pivot multiple times. We didn't have so much of a pivot as like a, a deepening. Our initial idea that we and we actually were super lucky. We got into Y Combinator. On our first application, which wow. uh, <laughs> come on, I think we did the math, and it was like they only accept one percent of applications. Uh, so, like you know, six thousand companies apply, or, or three thousand companies apply, they accept three hundred per batch or whatever. Um, so, it's very rare to get accepted, but it's even rarer if you don't have a previous startup and you have less than two years of start of like experience as a as a person uh, as a founder. And so we were like, oh, so we're like much less than one percent. Like we got really lucky. That, that definitely helped. But what we applied to Y Combinator with was an idea of solving the supply-side crisis in the mental health space by essentially creating a bullpen of really talented mental health professionals, so therapists and psychiatric nurse practitioners, which is like a, it's a, a lower uh, degree of autonomy than a psychiatrist, but they still have more training than a typical nurse practitioner. And they're able to focus on psychiatry. So we, we took those two license types, we tried to make a bullpen of them, and then we would uh, staff them out on an hourly basis to other organizations who had lots of patients but not enough providers. And that idea, basically like Amazon Web Services, centralized resource, but for healthcare, uh, got us into Y Combinator, and we actually grew it pretty quickly to uh, about $100,000 of, of monthly revenue. And our business model now is direct patient care. So whereas previously we were kind of uh, like a, a staffing company or a bullpen, even, if, even though it's on an hourly basis. So our providers were seeing patients, but we weren't the ones uh, bringing those patients in. We weren't the ones responsible for the patient journey or the patient care. Now we're doing the full like vertical offering. So what we do, really simply, is we are a psychiatry company. We take insurance, and we get people in in the same week. So we're located in Texas. We're only operating in Texas at the moment. Uh, we'll definitely expand as we grow. And the key pieces of this business are essentially you need to bring patients in underneath a certain cost. You need to bring, bring providers in. And you need to get them contracted with the insurance companies so that they're able to take a patient's uh, insurance coverage as payment. Very, very simple. Uh, but the operations of a day-to-day are, are a bit more uh, intricate to set up. And that's part of why there's such a difficult um, supply-side shortage in the mental health space. So... For people who don't have as much context, uh, mental health is you know, obviously a, a crisis in the country. Many, many people struggle with anxiety, with depression, with addiction, and have no 
avenue for treatment. Number one, it's expensive. Number two, it's hard to find a provider. Why is it hard to find a provider? Because there's only a fixed number of people who go through the medical programs on any given year. And most of them don't want to take insurance because it's not very lucrative for them. Uh, they can do better in private practice, or they've never you know, thought about taking the risk of a private practice, so they're in a hospital, but obviously the hospitals are uh, you know, very pressed as well, right? They don't have enough, uh, enough staff to be able to support the many people who do, who do need mental health help. Um, in order to solve that, what we've figured out is essentially psychiatric nurse practitioners are one of the few mental health uh, like license types that actually have a growing number of people going through schools and, and graduating. And if they're trained well, they can be you know, more than uh, sufficient for most mental health needs. There's some like edge cases where you really do need a psychiatrist who specializes in that field because they've had you know, 15 years of training instead of uh, like an average of like three to three to five. But for many things, you can use psychiatric nurse practitioners, and they're you know, wonderful. They're very well trained. They have a lot of field experience, and so they can, they can really do a great job. Um, and so we hire those providers. We get them contracted with the insurance companies, and we're able to make the unit economics work because uh, paying a psychiatrist on insurance reimbursement rates is much harder than paying a psychiatric nurse practitioner on those same rates. Um, I'll pause there just in case there's, like, more specific questions you wanted to ask about, like, how to – how we do the problem solving or whatever. No, that's that's amazing and great. And then I just wanted to provide audience some more information of what Legion Health does. Mm. You know, as you're talking with the people that have, you know, gone through and you know, the, the patients, you know, what is what has been their feedback? You know, what it how how have they just seen like the value and being able to, you know, get online with a with a, you know, nurse practitioner or a mental health care provider as opposed to you know, waiting a long time before they see somebody. Yeah, that you're, you, you pinpointed the one of the biggest things. So I just went into some of the macro trends or whatever, right? Mental health going, you know, uh, mental health need going up, provider supply basically staying stagnant, like big problem there, right? But from a patient's perspective, if you're looking for mental health care for yourself or for your family, you're typically going to have to go on Google or Psychology Today or your insurance company's online directory. And you might call 30 people, and maybe two people will answer the phone. The rest, you'll just leave messages. They might get back to you within a couple days or a week, but most of them probably won't. Those people that you do get on the phone in the first try, they're going to say, oh, actually, I'm sorry. I don't take that insurance anymore. I'm actually only taking cash pay. Oh, how much do you take? Oh, it's like $500 an hour. Oh, my gosh. Right? Or maybe you find somebody who does take your insurance, you know, one of the 30, and they're like, yeah, I take this insurance still. No worries. Um, my next availability is in three months or five months. And so as a patient or if you're looking for you know, care for your family, it's so disheartening. And I've experienced that myself, looking for friends, looking for uh, you know, family members. And it's very, very difficult to find care. And so for the patient experience that we've created, scan a QR code or you text our front desk and you're essentially immediately connected with somebody, um, literally on the second ring most of the time. Which is a, a rare, excuse me, a rare enough experience uh, by itself, and then you're able to get an appointment within three to five days, and it's covered by your insurance. And we have really friendly, really professional folks who will accurately diagnose you for the most part on the first try. Uh, there's a, a process of titration of medications and medication management that is complex. So it's like it's not it, it really requires some evidence-based experimentation, but uh, you know, 
just being able to get access in three to five days instead of three to five months is like a game changer for most people. I talked to one guy the other day. He's like, yeah, I tried to call this one place in San Antonio, and uh, they actually made my mental health worse. I'm like, oh, <laughs> why is that? He's like, well, you know, they scheduled me, but then they rescheduled me like three times, and like every time I would call, they would just be like, you know, 15-minute hold and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, like I get it. That's, that's terrible. So he was like, yeah. I was like so shocked that you guys just like responded and scheduled me. Sounds basic, but I- in especially in this particular space, doing those basics well makes a, a, a much better patient experience. And then, obviously, long term, what you're looking for is a reduction in the symptoms that they came in for and a genuine ability to approach life in a new way. Like psychiatry is mainly around problems with neurochemistry. Mm. Uh, therapy can help problems and uh, issues via a change in thought processes and processing trauma and processing. Previous life experiences, and being able to approach life in a new way. But sometimes, you're not able to fix, for example, like uh, a lack of serotonin with just therapy. Um, psychiatry comes in in those places, and it doesn't fully replace therapy. We, uh, all of our providers, like have training in therapy as well. But their their primary approach is to help with medication. So it's not it's not like everybody who uh, has a mental health issue needs psychiatry, but many of them do uh, after, you know, for example, other things have failed. And so having psychiatry that's well-tailored and uh, very well-managed on the side effects uh, side allows you to, you know, have the respite from those symptoms so that you're able to make those life changes or the mentality changes that otherwise would be impossible. If you're like, if you actually have, you know, something uh, imbalanced with your neurochemistry, it's going to be very, very difficult to like, you know, think yourself out of a problem. Well, I mean, one of the things that we talked about in terms when patient, you know, patients can't be seen or they have to be seen in like a very quick manner Mm -hmm. that they're not able to really diagnose fully what's happening and they might just prescribe SSRIs on default Mm. as opposed to actually like taking the time with the patient Mm. and really understanding like do they need, you know, this medication or do they, are there some other things, right, that they could go through. So, but I think that's something that, uh, you know, the, the ability for the patients to see and yeah. to, you know, get through. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. So yeah. a lot of times, actually, primary care physicians, so they're, they're trained in generalized medicine, and they're like the quarterbacks of the entire healthcare system. Primary care physicians prescribe the vast majority of psychiatric drugs. So if you look at every psychiatric drug ever picked up from a pharmacy, 70 to 80% of those are prescribed by a, a primary care physician, not a psychiatric professional, right? So they do have training in it, but it's not their main focus. And so uh, there are some statistics about the number of um, mental health issues that are misdiagnosed, underdiagnosed, or uh, prescribed the wrong thing. And these are like powerful medications. They're not meant to be used. Uh, well, it's like if, if you do it wrong, you can have serious problems uh, as a patient. And so because the supply side or the availability of psychiatric help is so limited, a lot of times primary care providers just do their best, right? And sometimes it's perfect, sometimes it's not. Uh, And that can have, again, dire consequences because these are powerful medications. And so when a patient comes to us sooner rather than later, they're getting specialized help for something that's very powerful and and can be very good. Well, that's amazing. I do want to segue into, you know, the expansion of the company, the growth of the company. You guys were just at Y Combinator, right, with Michael Siebel. 
the uh, you have an interesting story with the guy who founded Lyft. Uh, talk about that a little bit about you know the growth of your company and the inspiration you found at Y Combinator recently. Yeah, uh, well, I mean Y Combinator is amazing. They especially for first time founders, they kind of like get your head straight. <laughs> uh, they help you prioritize. They help you think about the first principles of growing a company. And we were very very grateful for all the help. Michael Seibel was our batch partner, so he was the one that was specifically giving us, you know, weekly check-ins and being like, no, you're doing this wrong, like, fix this part, and uh, he's very blunt, he's, a, he's an awesome guy. We went back for the reunion this year, and this is our second reunion, uh, and we had amazing speakers, Sam Altman, uh, the founder and chairman of OpenAI, uh, the founder of Rippling, the founder of uh, Relativity Space, which is like the third largest rocket company. Um, it's really inspiring to be in the same room as those folks because in some ways you realize, oh, wow, like I've seen this person on TV and they're just a regular dude in person. Like obviously they're brilliant, but like you realize, oh, this is just a human. I'm just a human. Maybe I can get there someday. So, uh, you know, it's just really, really cool. And you see the way they think about things from a, um, from a nonlinear perspective. Like they're bringing a ton of creativity to something that other people have approached uh, with, m with many more um, you know, hurdles. Like, oh, well, like, what if we just 3D printed our rockets? It's like, oh, yeah, I guess you could do that. Like, if you're <laughs> a super genius, sure. <laughs> so it, it, that was very inspiring. That's, I think, the, num the, the number one thing. And you meet cool people, right? You're, you're meeting people who have solved parts of your problem that you then can email. And the Y Combinator network is insanely close. Like, you can just reach out to somebody, and they'll respond to your email, even though they're, you know, obviously busy. And I'll jump on a 15-minute call with you and, like, help you solve your problem. So it's been you know, awesome. Amazing. I know we're uh, we're running a little short on time, but I do want to spend some time uh, on on a personal question. Mm. And uh, you know, they say behind every good man is a good woman. You've been married uh, for more than a year. You know, mm -hmm. talk about being married, right? Talk about your wife and the love and the inspiration that she gives you to be the best man that you can be. Yeah, Ali's brilliant. Um, she's been uh, just amazing to me as a as a man and also just my best friend like she's she's genuinely a really great person uh the pieces that you don't realize until you're married that are really important are again that character building piece like you don't realize until you get married oh wow like i'm actually pretty selfish in certain ways <laughs> and then your wife points them out to you you know in no uncertain terms because you've hurt you know you've, you've stepped on toes right and you know vice versa but like especially uh, for me, I was like, well, I didn't realize that I was like a bit self-centered in some of these ways. Like, I need to work on that. And then when you start working on your character in that way, that helps you become a better leader. But, you know, in a more like practical, tangible, less philosophical sense, you have somebody who's there with you, who's actually a ride or die, right? They've not just given you a ring, but they've signed a piece of paper saying, hey, look, we're going to do this together. And that's such an amazing feeling of camaraderie and comfort and just peace like, wow, I have somebody who I, who's, like, sharing this burden with me. Even if she's not, you know, at work with me all day, like, having her support is amazing. I, I do run problems by her. She's very smart, and she's she was an ICU nurse, so she actually really understands the healthcare system. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I love her. She's somebody that um, has made my life and my, uh, like, future is so much more exciting. Um, did you have, a like, a specific question, like uh, – how I met her or, like, what our journey was or anything like that? Or is that just kind of an end rail? No, I, I mean, go on if you want to talk more about it. I just think that it's important for, you know, people to understand, you know, why it is that we do the things that we do. And that's 
for love, mm. right? And uh, something yeah. I like to ask everybody that's come on here is, you know, what does love mean to you? And I know you just talked about that, you know, the love for your wife, but just in general, mm. you know, your love for friends, your love for family, you know, the love that you put out there to the community, mm. you know, talk about love. Yeah. Well, in the Bible it says uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and I think that a lot of good things come directly from just trying to put that into practice and love the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself, and that means the people that we see as patients, right? It means your actual close friends and family members, and it's very difficult to do something like this selfishly because even though there's a large financial outcome if you do things well, and there's a lot of like, you can get a lot of pride and ego from building a big company, uh, which we, I wouldn't say we have a gigantic company yet by any means, but hopefully it will be there someday. Even though th there's like personal gain from it, it's very, very difficult to do it without this feeling of like, wow, I'm doing this so that I can almost pay back my parents who sacrificed so much for my education. I'm doing this so that I can build an amazing dream life for my wife and my family and my future generations. And I'm doing this so that I can say, oh, my gosh, like these these people that I hired and that have been on the journey with me, I want them to have the best possible life. I want to like I want to provide for them. And that's like that's love. That's wishing the best for somebody else in a way that is um, genuine and selfless. And uh, I think it's especially in healthcare, like that's that's the heart of why like why you do things. Um and I like what I do. You know, it's just super fun. I love solving problems. I love business. It's like kind of a fun exercise challenge. And it gets more fun over time. Like you just keep like solving harder and harder problems. And like the problems don't feel easier, but, you know, they get it. it they scale with your own capacity. And uh, that's something that you can like really enjoy. Like I wouldn't say it's like the same thing as love, but it's like a you can just kind of dig into it the same way you like love sports, love exercise, love some sort of challenge. It's like you just get like into it. Wow, so good, man. What would be your final piece of advice for people you know, to inspire their life, right, to take action and live the best life? You know, What is just a general piece of advice that you would give people? Hmm. When I left McKinsey, it was because I was conceptualizing my future as – like a, a race. I'm like, well, I have like you know so many years, which I don't know how many, to do something really amazing. And at some point, I'm going to have to take, take a leap. You know, at some point, I'm going to have to take a leap from security into risk if I want to build everything that I possibly can. Why don't I do that sooner? So I guess my challenge to, or my somewhat inspirational, if, if at all, uh, piece of advice would just be, can you do something sooner than you think, sooner than you think you're ready for it, sooner than you think the opportunity is present? And the answer is probably yes. There's something that you can do in that way. Either it's a full-on leap or it's at least you're, you're planting the seeds, you're, you're starting to open the doors that will at some point become much more obvious and clear because you know life genuinely moves really, really fast. And so if you do something sooner, you'll be – uh, along certain milestones sooner, and then it's like a self-perpetuating cycle where you're like, wow, I guess that was possible. And then you just like do the other thing. You're like, wow, that was possible too. So um, 
Not particularly well put. But do something sooner. Can you do something sooner? Probably yes. Very well said. That was uh, profound and amazing advice, my friend. Thanks, man. Well, thank you for coming on the Inspire Your Life podcast. Really appreciate your time, Arthur. And uh, I know a lot of people are going to listen to this and be inspired and uh, you know learn a lot. So thanks, thank Morgan. You. I appreciate you, man.